What is going on, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of Internal Budget. As always, Brandon Mackey, staff writer for Silver7Sends.com, coming at you as your host for this here podcast. Make sure you like the podcast, share it with your friends, download, subscribe, rate five stars, all that fun stuff. They're little things, but they go a long way, and they are greatly appreciated. My guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He's a fellow Silver 7 Sends writer. He's a host of an awesome podcast called The Cost Per Point Cast, which I was on last week, which gives you even more reason to check it out. And he has a fantastic YouTube channel called The Hockey Shack. Folks, it is none other than Trevor Shackles joining me today, so please enjoy. Joining me on the podcast today, he is returning to Silver7Sends.com. It is Trevor Shackles. How are you, sir? Glad to have you. I'm good, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So you took the year off from writing. You've been on hiatus for a little while. I think everyone <laughs> has missed uh, has missed reading your work, and we're excited to excited to have you back at Silver Seven, of course. So why don't you explain to the people where you've been for the past year? We know you've been active on Twitter, but. Uh, what was the hiatus from writing like and uh, what are some of the other ventures you've gotten into? Yeah, for sure. So uh, if you're unaware of my work, I was at, um, well, I was initially at Silver 7 and then uh, moved to Hockey Buzz just for a little, a little over a year. Uh, and then, yeah, I took the past year off. I was going through a, um, a program at University of British Columbia. So it was kind of, it wasn't going to be good for me to be writing all the time. Um, just was going to be too much of a time commitment. I had to cut out coaching hockey as well. So um, that was, that was the break. And I always wanted to come back to writing um, whether it was going to be at silver seven or somewhere else, but silver seven always, you know, held a special place in my heart. So I'm glad to be back. I don't, I don't believe now, correct me if I'm wrong. Were you there at the tail end of my tenure at silver seven or no? So I think I came on right after you left. Like, okay. like I think I was one of the people that was hired to fill the spots that kind of opened up after you left. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, well, I mean, it, it's great to, you know, finally be, be together on the same site and um, yeah, you know, I've just been uh, still doing cost per point cast, which of course I'm sure we were going to mention at some point, you were just on my podcast a few days ago. So uh, it's great to yeah. kind of double dip here, and, uh, you know, be on each other's podcast. So been doing that, um, you know, the hockey shack YouTube channel, um, just some random NHL videos, some Ottawa content uh, as well on there. So yeah, just some different projects and, but it's, it's definitely good to be back writing. Like I missed, I missed being able to do some long form pieces. So yeah, it's good. So how did the stars kind of align for you to come back? Is it one of those opportunities that kind of opened it up for you, opened itself up for you, or was it something that you made a conscious effort and said, I, I need to get back writing again, and this is the place to do it. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, I had reached out, I think maybe June or July about, uh, about maybe coming back and there wasn't really room at the time. And I, and th that was totally understandable. Like I wasn't gonna, you know, force my way in or anything. Um, but it went, it actually worked out because, um, it is kind of bittersweet because 
my former co-host of the Cosmic Point cast, Colin Cudmore, fantastic. Um, he, he, you know, he's just fantastic writer and mm -hmm. friend um, of the show, friend of the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he, um, he is actually taking a step back from just sense coverage in general. Um, so he's still technically with silver seven, um, but not on a full-time role. So that kind of opened up a spot for me to come in. So, um, I'm grateful for him for that. Um, but at the same time, definitely going to miss him on the podcast. So bittersweet, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be back writing at least. Yeah, we are definitely going to miss the great coverage that uh, Colin brought in all aspects of Ottawa Senators hockey, but I'm sure he has a ton to offer uh, the NHL coverage as a whole. Uh, and like I said, Trevor, we are stoked to have you back on a personal level. It, it's it really exciting to be working with you. And since Appreciate we did, it. since we did CPP the other day, uh, I figured, you know, instead of rehashing a lot of the things that we talked about there, uh, we could kind of delve in a little bit to some of the guys and some of the angles that we haven't talked about. And uh, I think it was, uh, you know, Bears, Sharks, Mariners fan. I think he goes by on Twitter. It's like three <laughs> names to remember, but I know yeah, he listens yeah. to the show. So shout out. Uh, he asked a great question yesterday uh, on Twitter where he was asking people some prospects that they think they're higher on than most and lower on than most. And some of the guys you tweeted that you were lower on than most were Mark Kostelik and Igor Sokolov, who by happenstance are guys that I'm higher on than, than most. <laughs> Uh, so why don't you talk to me a little bit about what you need to see from those players to kind of to kind of make you come around on them? I know they were well. Kostalik was a later pick. Uh, Sokolov being an overager, I think the, uh, people kind of discount him a little bit on that front. So talk to me a little bit about what you need to see from those guys to convince you that they're NHL players and have a place in Ottawa's future. Yeah, it's kind of an, an interesting conversation, and um, you know they're similar players in the sense that they're both overagers. So. Uh, Kasselik played his final WHL season last year um, as an overager. And yeah, Sokolov, like he um, obviously put up some gaudy numbers this past year in the queue. And it's not as if I don't think these guys are have any potential or anything, but I do think we're getting a bit carried away with, especially Sokolov. I, I think there's um, maybe some people you know, just sort of expecting him to, to be a top six winger right away. And uh, I, and I think part of that is because they're, they're seeing his personality. Like he's been on locked on Senators podcast. Uh, there was that viral video of him with his billet family celebrating and stuff. And so, you know, he seems like a great guy. So like it, it's not, he's definitely an easy guy to root for. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to take his numbers with a grain of salt. You know, it, it it's pretty easy to dominate in the QMJHL as a 20 year old when you're playing against 16, 17 year olds. So, um, and, and, you know, I kind of had this belief about uh, Drake Batherson when he, in his uh, year after being drafted, when he dominated in, uh, I believe it would have been a uh, 17, 18. It, it wasn't that I didn't think he had any potential. It was more like, okay, well, let's see what he can do in the AHL first. And then he dominated. And obviously, you know, now I'm very high on him. So, I'm kind of just want to wait and see what he can do first when he's playing against guys, you know, who are actually going to be closer to his size and his age and stuff like that. So, um, and, and I think I would be similar with Kasselik in that he, you know, I, I bet you there's actually a decent chance that he ends up being an NHLer, but probably more in like that fourth line role. I would so, agree for sure. Yeah. And kind of, kind of like Parker Kelly almost because you know, Troy Mann is a guy who talks up Parker Kelly all the time, but I, I don't think those, uh, Kasselik and, and Kelly in particular, 
I don't think they're going to necessarily be impact players. So I, I wouldn't have them too high on my list. Um, whereas Sokolov, I, I do think he still has at least some potential to, I think he's either going to be like a pretty solid second line power forward, or he's going to be the next Gabriel Gagne. So we'll see. God, don't even bring up that name. To <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good way to start the show. Uh, yeah, I, I think those are some good points. Uh, I think it happens more often than not that the guys who are big time producers at the junior level at a younger age are the ones that pan out at the NHL level. Um, it's easier to separate yourself when you're older and bigger for sure. One argument that I think people, or counter argument, I should say, that I think people would make about Sokolov in particular is the way he performed at the World Juniors last year. And that was something that got me really excited when, when the Senators drafted him, was thinking back to that. I remember like just watching that tournament and watching the Russian team and looking at this kid. I'm like, who is this grizzly bear that's going around knocking everybody on their ass and scoring and making these skilled plays while he was at it? He was frustrating me in that Canada game. <laughs> I was like, I was getting annoyed. But yeah, so I think a guy who can be so f- dominant in both ends of the ice in a tournament like that, to me, when you're playing against the best of the best of your age group, like it, it's not 17 and 18 year olds that dominate the world juniors as much, right? It's the older mm-hmm. players with the exception of, you know, the blue chip prospects like Alexi Lafreniere. Uh, so to me, that's something that makes me think, well, hold on, maybe there is a little something here. Uh Thinking and considering the world juniors uh, in your approach to evaluating this player, does that change anything for you? I think somewhat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, seven games, it's it's obviously a small sample, but yeah, um, like you're saying, like it's he, he's playing against some of these top players. So that is good to see. Um, for me, I think uh, I forget where we briefly talked about this uh, last time and, and we won't give anything else away about the, uh, top 25 under 25 prospects. Sean um, I, I honestly can't remember where, where I put him, uh, so glove on the list, but just with how deep Ottawa's system is, you know, it, it's hard for him to be in like the top 15 or 20, just because, you know, there's so many, um, good prospects in their system. So, um, to me, yeah, like to me, he, he definitely has that upside and that's good to see. I would just put him more as like a lottery ticket, not necessarily someone who you'd like, you wouldn't want him as your, as a prospect in your top five or top 10, you know what I mean? Like you'd, you'd want more of a, um, more of a sure thing like mm-hmm. Sanderson and Stutzla and guys like that at the top. So um, definitely like a guy worth following though, because if there is an AHL season uh, for this year, he should be playing there in Belleville. Yeah, I agree. And that is provided he doesn't come into camp and just absolutely tear it up out of the blue, which yeah. <laughs> we've seen before, right? Uh, but a guy like Kastelik is another one I really want to zero in on. Uh, and I think uh, this is something, a conversation that Sens, fan will, Sens fans will appreciate. Uh, you know, this is a guy who, even though he was an overager, he's got the size, his skating's pretty good, probably has another step to take before he makes the NHL level, I would say. Uh, but his scoring touch is something that really, uh, really makes him an attractive option to me. Uh, you know, uh, the more, more and more the hockey approach or the approach within hockey is focusing on secondary scoring. And it's something that I think personally, the senators really are going to need in the coming few years. The top end of their lineup is looking pretty good with guys like Kachuk and Stutzla and Batherson. But when you look in the bottom of their lineup, um, the only guy who I could really see right now, or guys, I should say, uh, that can provide some consistent secondary scoring are looking like Alex Formanton and Rudy Balsers. And they're even then they're kind of not, you know, as much, maybe Colin white, if he's playing in that bottom six, but Mm -hmm. 
is Castellic an attractive option for you there? This is a guy who, you know, has scored tons of goals playing for the Calgary Hitmen, even as an overager, or is it that kind of overager thing that does that kind of make you still take a little bit of a step back? The overager thing makes me take a step back in terms of his overall potential. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be penciling him in as a potential second line player or even like maybe a third line player. Um, But I do think, like I was saying earlier, I do think that he can be an NHL player and you know, looking at his goal totals, like it's insane. I mean, this year he had 38 goals in 58 games. The year before he had 47 in 66. So definitely a lot lower assist totals, but um, you're right. Like he obviously has a knack for scoring. And if you can have a guy like that on your fourth, maybe even third line who can throw the body around. And, and we know that Ottawa likes guys who who are physical and can kill, kill penalties and block shots and all that stuff. So um, I do think he would have some value um, especially as a guy who just, you have a lot less expectations for him. Right. So, um, yeah. And, and I think it is interesting to, to note, um, not that this is necessarily like a knock against him or anything, but he's born the same year as Josh Norris and Eric Brandstrom. So it's just funny to see that, like, um, where they're, where they are, um, in terms of their development, because realistically, you kind of need to see something from, from Kasselik right away in the AHL. Otherwise it's uh, you know, he's going to be starting to get passed by, by other prospects. Yeah, I agree with that. And if I recall correctly, you were one of the guys who wasn't so bullish on the Ottawa senators draft this past year. Uh, (laughs) You know, you were pretty vocal about liking, you know, the upper end players. Like, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be complaining about Tim Stutzla. There was some griping about uh, Jake Sanderson, but I think people have mostly started to come around on him as well. Uh, Why do you think this disparity exists between people who analyze the draft and the players that the Ottawa senators actually take? Because critics of, you know, the more, I guess would contemporary approach would say, well, you know, look at all these players that weren't expected to pan out, but did Brady Kachuk wasn't a sexy pick at the time, but look at him now, look at Shane Pinto. Uh, So why do you think there's that fundamental disconnect between the scouting approach that the Ottawa senators take and the scouting approach that people like, you know, you and Colin and Ari and everyone in the scouting community would Mm -hmm. like them to take. It's a really interesting conversation, Brandon. And I think, Twitter doesn't allow itself for enough nuance to definitely properly have that conversation. (laughs) Like I think, I think it's much better to talk about these things on podcasts like this, because, you know, when, you know, when someone like Colin or or myself or Ari or whoever talks about the draft, it, I, I understand how it can come across as being, Oh, like we think it's absolutely brutal and like Ottawa sucks and all this stuff. Maybe some people have that take, at least I, I don't necessarily have that take. I think there's a lot more, nuance with it um i think ottawa definitely has a much different philosophical approach than other teams including what i would do i I think they like i would definitely prioritize a lot more skill whereas i think they prioritize um guys who are known for working hard um especially one one that i've noticed a lot recently in guys like uh, Shane Pinto and Jake Sanderson and, um, you know, Robbie, Robbie Arventi, stuff like that is players who are very late bloomers and just, you know, just starting to emerge. We saw that with Jake, Drake Batherson, um, as well. And, and I guess even, even like all these overagers like Kasselik and Sokolov and all that stuff. So I think they try to target these players who are, you know, 
weren't necessarily going to be at the top of the board when they were 16 or 17, but maybe by the time they're 18, 19, 20, they're getting even better. So um, I think that sometimes lends itself to them finding these diamonds in the rough and they've done a, a pretty decent job of drafting over the past, like, I don't know, 10, 12 years, I'd say. But at the same time, I, I don't think it's quite, I think there's some people who, uh, are willing to give them the benefit of the doubt with every single pick. I, I, I don't think they're like that at that level in terms of um, how good they are at drafting. You know, I think they're definitely above average at drafting. I think they're very good at identifying NHL talent, but I think they are probably around average at finding real impact talent. So, you know, the Carlson's, the Stones, the, uh, you know, Hoffman's, whoever. So, I think they definitely do deserve the benefit of the doubt with some of these picks. You know, we're seeing already certain guys like Levy Marilainen, uh, Philippe Daou, like there's, there's players who are already outperforming their expectations in their small sample. So um, yeah, I, I think like, I think some of it is, you know, people like myself or whoever are going to be, you know, maybe, maybe they don't know much about certain players that are drafted. And of course, like, I didn't know who Philippe Daou is and, and some of these other, other picks. So um, I would never say that myself or anyone who is criticizing the draft knows more than scouts. That's, that's absolutely preposterous. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting to see. I, I just think they have a different philosophy for team building and, you know, who knows how some of these prospects are going to turn out because I think a lot of people have already, you know, um, they're already expecting guys like Batherson and Formington and, um, you know, Bernard Docker, Thompson, they're, they kind of already are under the assumption that they've made it and that they are NHL players. I think a lot of them can and will be, but I do think we still need to, to take our time with that to see what kind of players they turn into, because realistically we don't know yet. So, um, yeah, like I, I I'm not, I think I, I would come across as a critic for their drafting when in reality, I still think they're above average. Um, it's just that I think some other people think they're like, you know, top three in the league, which I wouldn't put them quite that high. Yeah. I, I think in order to put them that high and, and I'm a guy who, you know, I, I really come around on their drafting ability in the past few years, based on the players they've hit on the players they've passed on that they wouldn't have hit on had they taken them. Uh, I think the big thing for me that I've noticed, especially looking at this year's draft in its entirety, is they, they, they seem to be really opting for a long-term lineup building approach. Like they're sure. not afraid to use first round picks on guys they know aren't going to be top line players, but are going to be really good second line players or really good um, second pairing players that maybe may not be available in that second round. Uh, and I think with a wealth of picks, which they've had in the past few years, that's that's not a bad approach. Are, are you seeing the same things there where they kind of waited until this year to really, you know, take home run swings on guys like Tim Stutzla and Jake Sanderson? Um, and maybe they've used the last couple of years of picks to use uh, on players like Lassie Thompson and Shane Pinto, who they know are going to fill out the back half of their lineup. And do you agree with that approach or would you rather see them go skill, skill, skill in those first couple rounds? I agree with your assessment. I think that's definitely what they're doing. It seems like they drafted Sanderson to be that left-hand shot on the second pairing right behind Shabbat. Someone like, um, I don't even know who, maybe like a 
first team that comes to mind is St. Louis, like, you know, Colton Pareko behind um, Petrangelo. So like someone on the, someone solid defensively on that second pairing. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely think that's what they are doing. I personally wouldn't agree with that. And again, that's where that philosophical difference comes in. I would definitely prioritize just getting the best player available and then just sort of um, filling the lineup that way. Like if you have a guy who should be on your first line, but he's on your second line, <laughs> I think that's, even better. So, um, but yeah, and I do think there is definitely like a, a team building aspect to drafting, you know, a bunch of UND players, you know, where they have four players on there right now and, a, and Tyconic like who that. used to yeah. be on UND. So they almost had five, um, you know, Norris and Kachuk are like best friends or something. So they have a lot of camaraderie on the team and they, and they definitely value that um, or, you know, just, they have a lot of connections with, with their prospects and, and players. So I think that definitely is something that they, they try to focus on. Um, but yeah, I, I think they are different in that sense in that they try to, you know, if they think they have a spots to fill on that third line, they might, they might take a guy like uh really Greg. So yeah, it's, uh, it's not something that I would do, but again, and it's not the, the worst strategy, especially if, especially if you're trying to create a team and an atmosphere where everyone likes each other. And I I think there is some aspect where, you know, you're not going to have a team that's, I guess we saw this with the 17, 18 team, right. Where there, that dressing room must've been so split. And I feel like they might actually be a bit um, haunted by that. I think so. so I think they're trying to overcorrect for that and who knows if it works, we'll see. But um, yeah. It's, it's such an interesting thing, right? Because I think in terms of prospects and, and drafting, all eyes in the NHL are on the Ottawa Senators. So if it's an approach that's successful and yields a championship or two, then I think it's something a lot of people are going to try to replicate. But mm-hmm. if not, then it's going to be one of those things, just another thing that blows up in the faces of, of the Ottawa Senators. So I guess my question to you is, question to you is this. Knowing how you feel about the approach, um, is it something where you've kind of come around on it more in the past few years, seeing guys like Shane Pinto and whoever you Roby Arventi get drafted, maybe going, who the hell are these guys? But then seeing them tear it up in whatever league they're playing in, whether it's Europe or college, uh, is it something where you've kind of warmed up to it or, or do you need to see more success at the NHL level and the AHL level before you kind of start, you know, uh, I guess champ- championing the Ottawa Senators draft strategies? I think somewhat, I think some, it somewhat changes like for, it, it does change for a guy like Batherson who has, you know, maybe potential first line ceiling. Um, you know, Shane Pinto definitely wasn't a huge fan of the pick at the time. Um, I think he has top six potential now. Um, so I, I think certain picks, yes, but at the same time, like you're saying, I would like to see that translate to the NHL level first because, you know, Pinto had a fantastic season. No one's going to take that away from him, but he's still in college. He still needs to, I'm assuming we'll spend in Bell, time in Belleville, maybe like in 2021 or something. Um, and then translate that to the NHL as well. So um, yeah. And, and one other thing I, I will say too, that I think they are very, very good at identifying NHL talent. So that can mean, second and third line players, maybe like second pairing defensemen, depth players, stuff like that. I still think they need to do a bit better job of identifying potential elite talent 
you know, you look at a team like Tampa Bay, they're the golden standard for this, having Kucherov in the second round, Braden Point in the third round, um, you know, Tyler Johnson undrafted, Yanni Gord uh, undrafted, Palat seventh round. So they found top six players everywhere, not just at the top like Tim Stutzler. So um, I, I would like them to see, or sorry, I would like to see them try to go after that elite talent. But yeah, who knows? I mean, like a guy like maybe Philippe Daou turns into a superstar. Like we don't even know. So it, it'll take some time to evaluate, but there's a lot of, a lot of good prospects. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm excited about their prospect pool right now. It just seems like a lot of them profile as more, maybe like fringe first liners, second liners, stuff like that. And it's a conversation where a guy like Pierre Dorian is a really interesting character study. Uh, he's had a rough few years. Uh, he's been uh, he's been the target of some vitriol from Ottawa Senators fans. Some deservedly so, some maybe a little unfairly. Uh, yeah. I want to know, now that with the trades he's made, like recouping, for example, in my mind, a huge return for J.G. Pajot, um, for acquiring the picks he did, for using him how they've had, for ending up with a stacked uh, draft class in 2020, at least in terms of picks, um, and which, which by all by all accounts was their strategy, was to optimize their picks as much as they could in 2020. Has he redeemed himself at all in your mind? Or, or is this still a guy who you see, you're always going to see as, you know, he's the guy who traded Eric Carlson. He's the guy who traded Mark Stone. He's, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, you know what, Brandon? It's, it's something that I might actually touch on in an article in the next couple of weeks or so. To me, he's just an absolute roller coaster. I think there's almost no in-between with Dorian. It seems like he's either making very good moves or very poor ones. Um, I don't know if I'm alone in that thinking, but, you know, you look at a signing like Evgeny Dadnov, fantastic. I, I don't know how that happened. You know, he was just three years, perfect length, five billion, super cheap. I don't know how they got him. Run. Yeah, home runs. So fantastic. And like you mentioned, Pajot trade, I don't know how they got a first and a second for him. Um, obviously, it, the pick ending, ending up uh, at 28th wasn't ideal, but it had the potential to go as high as 13th. So that's, you know, that's still still a good trade. Um, you know, you look at selling off Derek Broussard before he fell off in Pittsburgh, getting Gustafson and a, and a pick for him. And then uh, what are some other moves? Uh, I'm kind of blanking, but I guess the Carlson deal at the time, it didn't look very good. And I think Doran definitely lucked out with San Jose bottoming him out. But still, they ended up with a lot of stuff, and I wouldn't reverse that trade right now, like and and give Carlson that that contract. I think no. I think Ottawa ended up on the better side of that deal. So there's those. But then, yeah, you look at Mike Hoffman trade. Pretty much get nothing out of that. Yeah, it was a horrendous um, move. Yeah, um, just the whole deal with Mark Stone. Like he should have been signed to a long-term extension that summer, and instead of uh, that one-year deal, getting Brandstrom is at least a bit of a consolation prize, but I'd still rather have stone. Um, you know, you look also, at, get, sorry, not, not to jump idea. in right away, but I mean, not getting a first round pick for Mark stone, who yeah. was, who was, you know, the most highly touted trade deadline piece in years. Like when was the last time a player of that caliber was available at the deadline? And, you know, it's yeah. something we talked about on CPP. I love Eric Branstrom. Like, I think that was a huge acquisition by Dorian, but Branstrom aside, you've got to get a first for Mark Stone. Like there's just, oh, for there's, sure. no, there's no reason that that was bungled. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that was a good point though. Um, it's true. And uh, 
Yeah. So, and then there's been some other, other, you know, less than ideal moves. I think there's a bandage ad for Brassard trade. I hated that at the time and it looks even worse now. I think the bandage ad would be a perfect player to sort of have as that bridge for, for the next generation. And he's still only 27 years old. Um, and then even just like recent moves. Now, now these ones aren't huge and it's not, it's not as if this like, uh, ruins a team or anything, but just giving up assets for Erica Branson and Austin Watson, just, I, I don't love that. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not that high on his ability to find good depth players. So we'll see if he can actually do that, you know, when they're trying to compete, because for now it doesn't really matter. So it's not a huge deal, but um, yeah, so it's, it's very, it's, you know, either 10 out of 10 moves or zero out of 10, at least in my mind. So it's, we, we need a couple more years to evaluate how these prospects are going to develop before we can really evaluate him. Um, even though he's actually been the GM for over four years now. Now, I think that's a really interesting segue into the next part. And, and that's uh, talking about how long it takes to evaluate somebody. And I think for Dorian, it really comes down to the circumstances under which he's evaluated, right? Like it's no secret that the Ottawa senators operate on a budget uh, and that, you know, he may not have some liberties or assets that other GMs have, but let's talk about DJ Smith a little bit, because this is a really interesting case study for me. Uh, When the hire was first announced, I was like, you know, this seems like kind of a safe move. Like, you know, there were other options available. Uh, I was a big fan of Brad Shaw. I thought Shaw was the one that the Senator should have hired. But after having some time to digest it, I started to come around on it a little more. And, you know, when we did our uh, our management grades uh, at the end of the season for Silver 7, I actually gave DJ Smith, I think it was either an A or an A-. Uh, I was really happy this year with how he used his young players, um, lineup structure. I had some small gripes, like the Shabbat and Zaitsev pairing was, you know, it was it was hard to watch at times. Uh, but I liked his decisions on goaltending. I liked his decision on players like Nick Paul. He didn't seem to be afraid to give young players a chance to succeed uh, in roles that were good for them. So not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I was a fan of DJ Smith this year. Uh, did you like how Smith managed this roster this year or, or, or were you a little more mixed on it or even, or even negative in, in tour? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was quite as high on him as you. Um, but at the same time, like I'm not, I'm not wanting him fired or anything. I, I, I believe now I wouldn't have actually done any grades for this. Cause obviously I wasn't writing this year, but I believe at the time, um, and even just thinking about it now, I would probably give him like a B minus, which is still fine. That's still like, you know, in the, anything in the B range is still good. Um, yeah, I, I think I wasn't quite as much of a fan for the usage with some of the prospects. And that, again, that's just something that's a bit of a philosophical difference, right? I, I think I would have liked to see the prospects get a bit more of a leash, whether that be Brown or Batherson or... Um, I get Brandstrom got a, a proper chance and he, he didn't quite, quite take that. So I'm fine with, with him getting, getting the games he did. Um, but yeah, there were, there were just a few guys that I, I would have liked to see a bit more often. Um, and at the same time, I don't think last year was much of a test for him anyway, because they weren't going to have a, like all of their prospects yet anyway. So it, it definitely had a lot of, a lot of veterans and, you know, there was no pressure. So, I wouldn't, I don't know, personally, like I wouldn't 
like I wasn't going to give him uh, an amazing grade or a terrible grade pretty much either way, unless you would have had to be really, really bad for me to give him something lower just because, you know, it was going to be hard to be, you know, the team was going to be awful anyway. So um, I don't know what else he could have done, honestly, to, for me to give him like a C minus or something like that. So I think the real test is this year and next year. Well, yeah, more realistically this year, just to see if he's willing to put guys like Batherson and Brown and Norris and, you know, maybe if Formington comes up or whatever to see if they can actually, if he can integrate those guys into the lineup full time, because I think that's super important. And really like that's his most important goal because who cares if, uh, you know, Evgeny Dadnov or uh, Erica Branson or whoever, like one of these veterans, who cares if they're getting, if he's getting the most out of them, like they're just placeholders. Right. So um, yeah, I, I'm definitely curious to see what he can do this year. And I guess the next, but I will say also a lot of times with NHL coaches, there's sort of that first year honeymoon period where, you know, we had it with Guy Boucher the <laughs> first year going to the conference finals and, 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 you know, even with, uh, God, previous coaches, Paul McLean, like Corey Cluson, like we've had it with previous coaches. So I just kind of want to see what it can do this year. And if I'm still feeling decent or even better about him, then I'm feeling pretty good. But um, I'm just kind of taking the wait and see approach for him. Is it one of those things where you have to kind of apply different standards to different positions? Because for me, uh, I am really interested to see what he does with the forward group this year. There's so many young guys jumping into that, Corey. We talked about Logan Brown, Alex Formington, uh, Drake Batherson, Tim Stutzla. So, you know, how the usage of those guys is what really is going to be fascinating to me. Uh, You know, I'm encouraged by the fact that Nick Paul got a great look this year playing in a bottom six role. There are people upset that he wasn't playing higher up in the lineup, but on a contending team, Nick Paul's not going to be playing about a third line, right? Uh, Logan Brown, when he was playing well in my mind, and you might disagree with this, got consistent top six looks when he started to kind of fall off a little bit near the end of his stint, then that was when he was relegated to third and fourth line. And, And for me, my only gripe was that is look, if you're not going to play Logan Brown in the top six, send him back to Belleville where he's going to play in the top six. All this is to say the interest and the intrigue is going to be with the forwards this year. I'm not keen to evaluate DJ Smith based on his blue line this year, because what does he have? Uh, You know, I think the best thing that we can hope for this year is that he makes usable, you know, if we're lucky top four options out of Josh Brown, out of Artem Zub, uh, seeing Christian Willandon get a really nice look would, would be nice because at this point, what more does the guy have to do to deserve it? He was getting it at the end of last season when the coronavirus pandemic ended the season. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say in the cliff notes version is that I'm interested to see what he does with the forwards, the blue line. It's, it's almost like, you know, not that I couldn't care less, but I'm not really, you know, I'm not going to be kicking DJ Smith's door down with a torch and pitchfork if Artem Zub is playing on the bottom pairing, you know? Yeah, and just to touch on the on the defense first, I think you're right. I think, you know, Shabbat's your number one. That's pretty easy. You know, you can count on him to be that. I think if, you know, if you have like two others who end up being like reliable top four players, then that's massive. You know, if I think Willannon is that already, he obviously hasn't played that many NHL games, but I think he can be that second pairing guy. So if you have him 
and he, you know, he's healthy, plays the whole season. And then maybe if like Zub or Brown or whoever can play in the top four as well, like reliably, then I think that's a massive win. Um, you know, I, I would expect less, but yeah, that would be a massive win. And then for the forwards, you're right. There's just, I mentioned this on the Cosmo Pointcast, and there's probably about 20 forwards who could easily play in Ottawa like the entire year next year. You know, you're, you're going to be looking at most likely Josh Norris, Alex Formington, Vitalia Bramov, like all in the minors, um, maybe Philip Schlopik as well. There, there's so many players that will be looking to get ice time. So um, I'm sure they'll do what they kind of did last year where they kind of rotate a lot of guys like Abramov got a, a few games here or there. And I'm fine with that, like just seeing what sticks essentially, um, unless they – you know, unless you, you are playing fantastic for, your few, for a few games, I think you should stay there. I don't think you should rotate everybody. But and I will say the one thing I do like about him is the fact that it seems like most, if not all, the players do really like him. He seems kind of like that. You know, he's been talked about as a, as a player's coach. Um, you know, he isn't someone that's going to just come in the room and yell at everyone like John Tortorella, who, you know, is effective in his own way, but um, not something that I would necessarily want for Ottawa. So um yeah it's good he's, it seems like he uh is someone that the players can come to and, and talk about you know what they need to work on and stuff like that so um ultimately like you're going to need a coach that uh the, the players respect right and and that the players like to be around so if that if uh you know if he was like an amazing tactician but terrible at communicating then it wasn't it isn't going to work so um i will say that about smith and uh, yeah, you know, like, I guess we'll need the next, at least the next year, probably the next year or two to really properly evaluate him. Yeah, you nailed it. You actually said everything I was going to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's perfect to have a kind of guy who, you know, is not going to be a complete hard ass, but is also going to hold guys accountable. Um, yeah. a, guy, a guy who's played the game, right. Who knows what it's like to be an NHL player and knows some of the difficulties, the trials and tribulations that you go through during it uh and i think that's the perfect guy for a young team that's rebuilding and he's cut from the same kind of cloth as troy man you know and they both really sound the same when they speak about players and their approach to evaluating them and their approach to coaching and i think having that consistency from the ahl level up to the nhl level is going to pay dividends for for a young team trevor we won't go too much longer here man before i let you go uh i'm sure you're familiar with this new segment i'm doing that i don't have a name for but it's where I bring people on and they tell me about their favorite Ottawa Senators memories. Uh, it can be anything, you know, like a piece of memorabilia, going to a game, watching on TV, whatever. What, when you think of your Ottawa Senators fandom, uh, what do you, what defines, what defines it? What's the defining moment for you that you'll always look back on and smile? <laughs> I don't know if, can I, can I cheat and give two quick ones? Yeah, of course, man. And give as many as you want. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. I was trying to think about this before and I don't know if it necessarily, def if it's defining, but it's definitely two moments that stand out for me. One would be more recent, which was the 2017, um, you know, Eastern conference final run, which it's, it's hard to pick just one from that run, but one in particular, I guess was uh, game six against the Bruins when MacArthur scored the overtime winner. And, you know, just, just looking back, it's just so funny. Like I was home alone watching by myself Um for the listeners that don't know, I live in Vancouver, so obviously not many Sens fans here. But um, And I don't know how long overtime was, but 
however long overtime was, I was just standing up the entire time. I could not sit down or standing. And then I was just like, I was sweating. So I ended up taking my shirt off. I was just, <laughs> so if you walked in, if you walked in on the room and saw me, you would be so confused because it probably looks so strange. And then, so when MacArthur finally scored, I just, man, I was probably fist pumping for like five full seconds. I was just going nuts. Yeah. So, um, cause you know, they hadn't been to the, I guess they were, had been in the second round in 2013, but before that, it, it had been, you know, since 20, uh, 2007. Yeah. So it had been a long time since they'd won a series. Um, and then another funny story was uh, back to 2013 now. I was flying home from Toronto uh, on the same day as game three against the Canadians. Mm-hmm. And so it was – um, the game was going on, like, right towards the end of uh, – towards the end of the flight as we were landing – and so I knew, okay, I, I had the game taped. I was just going to watch it when I got home. I just, you know, made sure that my parents weren't going to spoil the score or anyone was going to spoil that for me. So uh, I'm going into the the luggage carousel, picking up my bags. And I'm like, okay, just avoid, you know, any, you know, if there's any TVs on or whatever. So you have the luggage carousel and there's, you know, I don't know, like 10 TVs on each side. Normally, like, you might have one or two that's on. Maybe some have TSN or, or Sportsnet on or whatever. Literally every single TV had the game <laughs> on. <laughs> I swear to God. And I didn't – somehow I just kept my head down the entire time, did not look at the score. I mean, I briefly – like, I noticed it, but I didn't look at what the score was. So, thank God I got home in time and I watched that game. And that was that fantastic uh, – the first 6-1 game of that series. So, that was a lot of fun to watch, but – yeah, it was just funny, uh, the fact that I was actually able to, you know, you know not look at the score. So, um, yeah, a couple, couple interesting and, and funny memories from, from my fandom. But, um, yeah, hopefully there's going to be a few more like that in the next five, ten years. Oh, I'd imagine there's going to be. My, dad, my dad's <laughs> a Bruins fan, so during that Boston series, that was fun. Because it was a fun house to be in. My my poor mother must have taken three years off her life, the whole thing. Uh, and then, you know, I had a similar story to you in terms of PVRing the game and trying to catch it without spoilers. I went to work uh, for what I, yeah, for what was game five of the Pittsburgh series last year. And that was the game they got blown out. I don't remember what yeah, the score was, like six seven. nothing or something. Yeah, seven, I think it was yeah. seven. Yeah, it was just horrible. So I had the game PVR'd and I come home from work and I'm about to watch it because it was an afternoon game right so I got home that night and my dad looks at me and just goes don't watch it (laughs) (laughs) oh no I go what he goes he goes trust "Trust me don't watch it I'm like that bad he goes worse (laughs) it's like worse than whatever you're thinking (laughs) and sure enough it was uh and and you know it's the little things right uh why do you think that is why do you think it's you know it's not well, the Senators don't have any championships. But when we look back on our favorite memories of the team, uh, it's more to do with the little moments that make being a fan of hockey great. Like I was at, I say this all the time, but I was at game five of the Rangers series in 2017. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one to be at. And one, yeah. more than the tourists overtime goal, uh, I'll remember spending that game with my dad, who again, Bruins fan. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll remember looking over at my dad after Anderson stops. I can't remember if it was Jesper Foss or if it was Kreider on a breakaway. And Anderson made this huge save. And uh, the whole arena just explodes. And then I look next to me and my Bruins fan father is chanting Andy with 20,000 Ottawa fans. You know, it's a little thing. Why do you think uh, that is? Why do you think it's those, yeah. it's those little things that, will, that, you know, that make being a fan so great? And those are the things that we'll never forget. 
yeah, it's great. I mean, it's just, you know, cause those are the things you wait for, right? Like, even though we've had like one actual run, I guess you'd call it in the last 12 years, um, that's, that's something that you wait for and that, and that's what you hope for for years. And so, so then when these moments finally do come around, you're just so appreciative of them. Um, and like, uh, you know what, even if Ottawa does win the cup in the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years, whatever, I'm not sure that there will be as many amazing moments as there were in 2017, because they had six overtime wins that, that run. And just like, how many comebacks? Probably at least five, I would say. Oh, yeah. Probably. It was so improbable, the whole thing. And yeah. And then even like for me too, um, another brief anecdote is that for, uh, I, for the conference finals, I was in Europe. So I was watching every single game at like one, th- one or two in the morning on the computer. And then so the, the double overtime game, it was literally like, I think it was like 5.45 in the morning when I was in Rome. And we had to get up in the morning at like 6.30 or 6.45. Mm. So I had about less than an hour sleep for that game. And you know what? Like, obviously that was terrible. But at the same time, it kind of softened the blow for that game, you know, because I was still on vacation. Yeah. And that's something that I'm going to remember for a long time. Like, even though it's not a great memory, it's just like a funny one now. So, um, yeah, I think like there's so many moments even even when Ottawa's so bad like they are right now, there's still moments that we that we look back on, and um, you know I, I'm never gonna just give up my fandom no matter how bad it gets. So um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Trevor Shackles has been a pleasure to have you, sir. Uh, great conversation on all points, and uh, always reminds me why it's great to be a fan of the Ottawa Senators and to be covering this team. So thank you for doing it. Appreciate the kind words, friend. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. Always. Why don't you tell people where they can find you at one more time? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at ShaqTS. Uh, you can find the Cost Per Pointcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all that. Uh, and then you can follow, uh, subscribe, I guess, on YouTube to the Hockey Shack. And yeah. Yeah, make sure you check us both out at Silver7. Follow me on Twitter as well, uh, at Brandon Mackey underscore. Make sure you go follow Trevor. Check out all his amazing content that he's got coming out. That's going to do it for this episode of Internal Budget. Make sure you like the podcast, share it with your friends, download, subscribe, rate five stars, all that fun stuff. It is truly appreciated, and we will see you next week. Please continue to stay healthy and stay safe, and take care.